Good evening. Tonight we will be in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. And when you find your place there, please uh, stand with me for the reading of God's word, to honor uh, the reading of God's word. Acts 17, starting in verse 16, we'll go through verse 34. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily and with, with them that met him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeking that he is, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word that you have given to us, the fact that we have it in our own language to read and to study. God, thank you so much for that, and we pray that your word would continue to go out to those who have never heard it and who have never had it in their languages. God, we're thankful that you have um, that you sent men like Paul to bravely share the gospel in dark places. Help us to do the same in a world that's rampant with paganism and with empty philosophies that try teaching, um, try teaching and leading people away from you. Lord, and help us to be confident and to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So tonight the sermon is on no leaps of faith. There are no leaps of faith. So what do we mean by a leap of faith? There was a Danish philosopher 
Uh, he was he he grew up in a Christian church. He was uh, by his, with like he was sent there with his family. He had seven siblings who were uh, well six siblings. Anyway, he was a Danish Christian, but he was a Christian under the influence of higher criticism and other issues of the 1800s. So we mentioned this briefly last week. The idea that uh, the supernatural doesn't exist or that miracles are not possible. So kind of keep that in your mind. And Soren Kierkegaard is known as the father of existentialism. What is existentialism? Well, it's hard to really narrow down. It's not really an ism because it's self-determined. Existentialism means that you yourself determine what truth and reality is. is. That's what the idea of existentialism is. And he is known as the father of that. Basically, Soren Kierkegaard, using the story of Abraham... And his, uh, when he was told by God to sacrifice his son, using that story, Soren Kierkegaard argues that uh, after leaving a life of sin and then thinking about these things of God, Abraham had to take a leap of faith in order to believe, uh, or in order to uh, like have belief. He believed faith and belief were two different things. In order to have belief and to live a religious life, he had to take a leap of faith, meaning that he had no way of knowing that things that he was going to be believing in would come true. It was a leap of faith. Now, there's a problem with that, and that is presuppositions. What is a presupposition? Well, a presupposition is what we presuppose before we believe certain things, and we'll get to those certain things in a second. So the question is, is Christianity a leap of faith? Well, it depends on your presupposition. In order for it to be, in order for Abraham to have made a leap of faith, that would, pre, that would mean that he did not believe that God was God, and that God had already done miracles in his life, including the birth of his son Isaac. And Soren's view kind of makes, puts man into a box where man is the arbitrator of right and wrong. So what are presuppositions? So presuppositions are like the, the, the things that we believe before we create our worldview. So I want to give you guys a list of some worldview questions. And these are things that I'm sure you actually think through on a daily basis, although you might not always think of it in these terms. So the first question we ask when we consider what is a worldview, so what's one's view of the world, uh, whether, it's a, whether it's we're trying to find like what a Mormon's view of the world is, what a Christian's view of the world is, or just anyone. What is their view of the world? First question, the most important one, what is prime reality? What is the really real? In Christianity, the first thing we're going to go with is prime reality. What defines truth is that there is a God who exists and he is a triune God, and it's the God of the Bible, the one who's spoken to us in his word, and through prophets and many uh, teachers along the way. What is the nature of external reality, the reality around us? What's the nature of that? That's the next worldview question. What, what is it that we are near? What, what exists around us? Quite, you, you might see some people answer this question with, well, what we're seeing is really a mirage, and it's all, it's, we, we're just tricked into thinking it's physical. That's what Christian science teaches uh, we, what, with Mary Baker Eddy. You may hear some people say that reality or external reality, material, is evil in its nature, like the Greeks believed that uh, matter was evil. They were following the teachings of Plato with that. Some people may say that reality is, is also not really a mirage, we're in a simulation. Some kind of alien life forms have us in a simulation, almost like the Matrix. Um, so, 
yeah, so there's different views. And then, of course, as Christians, we're, we view external reality the way Paul argues here, which is that reality, everything that we see and we can touch and we can smell, and then the supernatural realm as well, are created by God and through him for his glory, and it was all made good. It's been corrupted by sin, but it was made good, and he, mankind he made very good. Then the next question, what is a human being? What is a human being? Some people are going to argue that humans are nothing more than animals. Uh, some are going to argue that humans have souls, or that, and that, or that the soul might be a d- detached from the person. Some may argue that we are, although we are not really, we are animals, our brain is basically just some synapses firing and that we don't really think or have thought, but it's all just kind of part of our engine running. You might get a, um, a Carl Sagan or uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on that. One of like, the, really, the really stringent atheists. The next question, what happens to a person at death? Everyone asks this question. Everyone wants to know what happens to a person at death. Do you just stop? Is that it? Does your soul, do you, if you have a soul, does it continue on or does it die too? Uh, do you reincarnate and you get to do it all over again as a person? Do you reincarnate as an animal? Do you become an angel? What happens at death? Uh, the next question would be, why is it possible to know anything at all? How can we know anything at all? How is that even possible to know anything at all? And I think that question kind of answers itself because humans are the only ones asking that question. Um, animals don't ask that question. Uh, that, that shows that we are special. There's something about us that's different. Um, and that means there's something outside of us that makes knowledge possible. How do we know right from wrong? How, what is morality? Who determines what's right and wrong? Is there an outside force that determines right and wrong? Is there an outside law? Well, some people, well, you know, in a lot of areas, we agree that we're going to follow a set of laws. We all agree, make kind of a, a, a sometimes unwritten social contract that we're going to follow this group of laws just so nothing goes wrong. Otherwise, everyone can do whatever they want. Just imagine the anarchy on the road if you could just drive wherever you wanted. If you decided, I'm going to go the wrong way today. Well, what if everyone else did? Or if we decide red lights don't mean stop for me. So what, how do we know right and wrong? And why does it matter would be the follow-up question. What is the meaning of history? Where is this all going? Does history even have a meaning? Is there such thing as history if we're in a simulation? And finally, what commitments are necessary to keep the worldview consistent? If I believe these certain things, what do I have to do in order to be consistent in my thinking? And can I be consistent is a good question to ask. If you can't be consistent, you need to rethink your worldview. And actually, finally, are things or matter good and evil? All right, so Paul does address all of these and he, in his argument against the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the pagans that he's around here in Athens. And we'll get to that. But the problem is that we, we see that there is no such thing as a leap of faith. No one makes a leap of faith. Look at verse 30. It says, and in, in the times of ignorance, God winked at, or he overlooked. God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So the way Paul makes the argument here shows that there is no other option. He is not arguing with, consider, he's not saying consider this. Consider 
uh, that maybe there's a God, you don't know him, he's the unknown God, and that he, he may have sent his son Jesus to do these things, and you know, although I've seen him, you haven't seen him or experienced him. Uh, I saw him on the road to Damascus, but you haven't experienced him. So let your, you, you can decide for yourself if you think that this is true or not. And then you can make that leap of judgment. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is speaking as if this is reality, and this is the way it is because this is the way it is. And it is strange to them because he's teaching them a new thing, something they've never heard of. This is Athens. This is Greece. It's not, it's not Turkey where he was preaching before. It's not Israel. So Christianity is new here. It's, well, it's brand new to the world anyway at this point, but it's new in Athens. And something I want to really point out here is that there is no such thing as neutrality. Pastor Tim preached on that a few weeks ago. There's no such thing as neutrality. Paul believed, Paul presupposed that God exists in the Trinitarian form and that everyone believes that when he makes this argument. Look back with me at Romans 1, or actually look forward in your Bible at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's go to verse uh, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him, not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their, dark, or in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them to uncleanliness through their lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who, cha- who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever? Amen. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust to one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was met. And even as they did not like to retain God their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient." being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, and he continues. So, uh, in verse 32 he finishes, who knowing the judgment of God, that they commit such things that are worthy of death, death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So what is that saying? What is Paul saying there? Is that all men everywhere, every human being uh, in sin, if they are apart from Christ, have suppressed the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God is in them. I personally would don't believe that there is such thing as an atheist because they are suppressing that truth. The Bible is clear. There is no such thing as an atheist. They are lying. They are suppressing the truth of God with a lie. They are exchanging the truth for a lie. They're doing that which they please. They're trying to create God in their own in their own image, which is no God, which they're trying to create no God at all. They're trying to put God in a box. That's idolatry which Paul addresses here at back in Acts. So what we see here is that Paul believes that these people he's talking to believe this. They may say they're Epicurean. 
and we'll get into what they believe in a second. They may say they're a Stoic. They may be a pagan who's believing in Zeus and uh, Ares and all these other Greek gods. But Paul knows that in their heart they are made in God. Knows that they are made in the image of God, and that in their heart they believe these truths and are suppressing them. So let's look at let's look at this passage, starting in verse sixteen of Acts chapter seventeen. We see, it says, while Paul waited for them in Athens, he's waiting for his friends, he's waiting for uh, Simon, or, sorry, Timothy and Silas. While he's waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in them. Why? Well, he's waiting and he's looking at this city. He's looking at this city completely filled with paganism. There's temples everywhere, to the left and the right. You know, when he grew up, when Paul grew up in Tarsus and over there in, in, in the Israel area, there were temples. There were Hellenistic cities, which are, you know, old Greek cities from um, when Alexander had conquered everywhere. And then the Seleucids were in charge. So he sees temples everywhere. And his spirit is stirred because he sees the city given over to idolatry. So he starts with this normal tradition of going to the synagogue where he argues with the Jews or he talks with the Jews to uh, share the gospel with them and how Jesus has fulfilled the law. And it says, in the market, he daily met with them. Then, it gets interesting. In the market, people are overhearing him talk. It says in verse 18, certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to set forth a strange God, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. All right, so first of all, we see that what, what really draws their interest is, number one, he's a babbler, which kind of means like he, he, they, they, were, they, would, they were arguing that he basically was just picking philosophical-sounding things, but he wasn't really a philosopher. And others say he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them about Jesus and the resurrection. Resurrection was a foreign concept, completely foreign in this time period. No one thought about it. When you see in the Bible, you see several people who, who were brought back into life in the Old Testament. And in total, there's, I think, ten in Scripture, including Jesus. Other than Jesus, all of those were resuscitations, as um, some, some apologists call it. They were resuscitations. What does that mean? Well, they were raised from the dead, but they ended up dying again. Jesus rose again in his glorified state. So he's, he's resurrected. He was resurrected in new creation. That idea didn't exist in, in basically anyone's thinking. For the Jews, you had like this, you had when you die, you go to Sheol. For the Greeks, you die and you go to Hades if you're if and you're punished there. Some believe that you just die. But no one really had this idea that your your body and your soul get recreated. In fact, like with the Greeks, they wanted to be separated from their body. They believed that the physical was evil. So here they are, they're hearing Jesus, he's, they're hearing Paul preaching to them about Jesus and the resurrection. And of course, that word Jesus there is not just meaning that he's telling them about Jesus, he's telling them the gospel, he's telling them about how to be saved. So finally they come to him and they say, they took him and they brought him unto the Areopagus, that is the uh, mountain of Mars, Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know, therefore, what these things mean. And like I said before, these are completely foreign to him, very strange. And I, I love that here we are on a hill named after a false god, and you're about to have Paul uh, preach to them. 
So verse 22, Paul stood in the midst. He stands in the middle. It's kind of an informal, uh, basically an informal judgment of him at this point. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye, ye are too superstitious. So you're religious just like I am. But there's a catch here. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now the question is, was this unknown God really really the God of the Bible? Maybe, maybe not. But what matters is how Paul's going to use this to spin it like, hey, I see you guys have an unknown God, and you're saying that you don't know what I'm telling you about, so let me tell you about this unknown God, whom you're ignorantly worshiping, but him I'll declare unto you. So it's verse 24, he's going to rock their world. He says, God that made God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So in this one verse, he attacks, he basically attacks every single worldview that's present. Every single one. The first one, he answers the Epicureans. Now, what do Epicureans believe? In a lot of ways, they're hedonists, so they just seek pleasure. They believe that seeking pleasure is the highest value. Why? Well, they didn't believe in the gods of Greek philosophy or of the, of the Greek world. They didn't believe in the gods. They believed they were naturalists. They were the, some of the oldest versions of naturalism. The idea of naturalism, of course, is that all that exists is this box, and there's nothing outside the box. And even if there is, it doesn't really matter. So they were naturalists, and they believed, Epicurus believed, that the world and everything in it was made of atoms, now, how did these atoms work? Now, he didn't believe in atoms like we're thinking of atoms, you know, in the scientific uh, idea of today. He believed that they were just a small form of matter. Well, what are atoms? Well, he believed that atoms were all just falling down in, in nice parallel lines, just falling. Where are they falling to? He didn't say. Where did they start? He didn't say. And how are things made? Well, sometimes these atoms swerve. Why? just because they do. They swerve, they hit each other, trees form, the world forms, and when things go wrong, it's because the atoms swerved another way, and that's how Epi the Epicureans really believe the world exists. Now, if something that crazy, I too would just seek pleasure, if that was what I believed, but in any case, that's what they believed. Now, right here, Paul is answering, when he says, God made the world, he's saying right off the bat that there is a God who exists, and that everything you're seeing, he made it with a purpose, and he goes through and gives the purpose here throughout the passage. He made it with a purpose, so it's not just atoms falling and then sometimes swerving and hitting each other. There is a God who made it for his glory, and he controls it, and that all history is going a certain direction. He answers the Stoics, who similarly were naturalists. He answers them here with this as well. He answers the pagans, hey, it's not Poseidon in charge of the Mediterranean Sea. It's God. It's not Zeus in charge of the storms. It's not Ares in charge of war and other things. It's not Artemis who helps you with your hunts. It's all God. There's only one God, and he's in charge of all of it, and he made all of it. And unlike your, God, your, your false gods, he doesn't dwell in temples because he is the Lord of heaven and earth. So he's not this person like you think in, in, in Greek mythology, basically the gods were, were a fancy version of humans. And they could interact with humans. They could mate with humans, as we see Zeus doing all the time. They, they were interacting with humans. They were basically a, a more, I guess, superhero version of a human. 
Um, but he's saying, no, God is not like that at all. He's outside of all this. He created it all, and he controls it all. And he doesn't dwell in your temples that are made with hands. So he's saying, all these temples you have here to all these different gods, they're, they're worthless. They're worthless. They were a waste of time and man hours. Um, they're, they're, they're nothing. So this is also an answer again to the Epicureans because you have a God who's in control. And then we see here it says, Neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So, God, it says he created not just the world, but he created everything, and he continues to sustain it. All life, all breath, all things, just to sum it all up, everything that exists is controlled by God and for his glory, and he has created it, and he's using it, he's determining where it goes. It's all in his hands. Unlike these false gods, when you look at Greek mythology, if you read through Greek mythology, what are you constantly seeing? Things are going wrong, or the gods are having to intervene because they don't like something, or they don't like the way that another god did it, so they're going to go send in their champion to go do something. It's just constant, uh, just, just, out of controlness, and all the humans are basically just pawns in this sick game of, of nobility uh, fighting each other. And then you have this idea of the, the uh, once again, the philosophers of the time, uh, whether it's the uh, Platonic philosophers who believed that matter doesn't is evil. We have him saying here that God created it and he likes it. Well, they're believing that matter is evil and that only spiritual is good. And not only that, but Paul's telling them your view of spiritual is bad. The things that you, you see as spiritual are bad. Um, and that the way that you worship is not needed. God does not need those things. He doesn't need your, your oracles on mountains. He doesn't need your, um, your uh, agricultural rituals or any of that. All he needs is uh, what he's ordained in, his, in the word of God, which I'm sure Paul was going to get to if they didn't cut him off here at the end. And then we see verse, 20, we see verse 26. He hath made of one blood... 